Spring of Life Fellowship and Pastor Omar Vasquez invites you to listen to a message of restoration and strengthening for your life. Be a part of the vision, changing the world. La Iglesia Spring of Life Fellowship y el Pastor Omar Vasquez le invitan a escuchar un mensaje de restauración y fortaleza para su vida. Sea parte de la visión cambiando el mundo. Tonight is a special Wednesday. Well, every Wednesday is special, but tonight, as you can see, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So it's extra special. Amen. Oh, I hadn't noticed how these lights are blinding from up here. Let's go ahead and have the ushers pass out um, a copy of the book, Restoring the Gates of Prevail. We're each going to have a copy given to us tonight that we're going to use as we share from this book tonight, and you're going to be able to take that home with you. We feel it's important for every member of this church to have a copy, and not only to have a copy, but to be very familiar with what's in this book. Let's pray tonight. Lord, we thank you for tonight, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because we know that you will take Pastor Joaquin and Yvette safely to the destination, Lord, and that you will use them, Lord, greatly once they arrive. We pray for this service tonight, Father. We pray that your will be done, Lord, that your spirit will speak, Father, that we might be able to hear those words that you have for us, Lord, that will help us to change the world, Lord, and to live a life, Father, that is pleasing unto you, Lord to live a life, Lord, that can be an example to this world, Father, that so desperately needs to see light in the midst of this darkness, Lord. We thank you for this church, for this building, for everybody that is present here, Lord, for each family. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people say amen. Before we get into anything on, on the book, I, I wanted to comment. Have we handed them out yet? Raise your hand if you haven't got one. I wanted to comment first on last Sunday's preaching. How many enjoyed what Pastor Joaquin shared last Sunday? I thought that it was an extremely timely word and, and a word that is much needed today. He spoke about the order of, of God in the, in the home. And he spoke about how the children have a specific order to follow how the wife has a specific role to play in order to follow. But he focused mostly, as, as he usually does, on the man's role. Because without a man at the head of the house, we know what can happen. And, and I told him after the service, I said, you know, that I could relate so much to what he had just shared because of some experiences that I've had recently. And how I've been able to see firsthand how the absence of the father figure in, in the homes in, in this country it's absolutely killing families. It's causing chaos in families, and, and that just has a ripple effect through, through the entire um, society. And I'm not just talking about the physical presence of a man, because for that we can just buy a mannequin and stand it up in the corner, and we would solve the problem. But rather, we're talking about a man who fills the role that God has for him in the house, a man that is a, a godly husband, a man that is a godly father, uh, a man that, that does what God designed him to do. And like I said, I, I see it on a daily basis uh, when I'm at work, uh, constantly getting calls to, to rush to, to families' homes and intervene in, in violent uh, domestic arguments. Uh, it's, it's well known that the most thing that... Uh, officers have to deal with on a daily basis is domestic violence and mentally ill people. And Pastor Joaquin mentioned how the dysfunctional family is leading to mental illness. And I can tell you that that wasn't something that, that he said uh, off the cuff. It's, it's a fact. And they are both things that are res results of the dysfunctional family, are results of families that don't have God's order established in them. Uh, just this week, we, I, had a, I had a call to an area in the, in the south part of, part of Kendall called Richmond Heights. 
It's an area of mostly, of mostly black American uh, families. And it was a neighbor that was calling, yelling that in the house next door, it, it sounded like two women were killing each other. So I, I arrived with another officer, and the front door uh, wasn't locked. So we swung the door open, and we can see about a 45-year-old uh, mother fighting with about a 20-year-old daughter. And they were just like two cats going at each other. So we were able to enter and break them up, and they were, they were just scratching and pulling their hairs, and they were all scratched up. There was weaves on the floor. They were crying and yelling. It was just a horrible scene. But it's something that, that we've seen so often, but what was peculiar about this particular scene was that after we were able to settle everybody down and find out who everybody was, I see a man sitting in the back of the home, a man on a sofa. And he had not even raised his head to look at us. He was sitting on a sofa in a computer, just in a laptop, just like if he was working or something with glasses on. And after everybody was calm, I, I, said, I said to the mother, who is that man in the back? She said, oh, that's my husband. And I said, that's your husband? She said, yes. I said, her father? She said, yes. And I guess she noticed the bizarre look on my face because she said, oh, he knows better than to get involved in this. And, and I was just shocked. I said, my God, what have men been reduced to in the American homes? It's a, it's a sad situation, and it comes back to exactly what, what we heard on Sunday. I had another call just two nights ago where a 16-year-old was calling that he was being abused by his father. And when I um, knock on the door, the 16-year-old answers it, and he had piercings in his ears, across his nose, through his tongue. He looked like a tackle box had exploded in his face. And I could barely understand them because he had so many things attached to his lips. But he said, I said to him, well, tell me, tell me what's going on with your father. What is the abuse? And he said, my father insists that on a daily basis I take out the garbage. And I know my rights. And he's violating my, uh, what was the word he used? My constit uh, some weird word, constitutional rights, I believe, he said. I said, really? He said, yeah and I'm tired of it. I want a police report. And I look at the parents, and the parents are just sitting in the sofa, mute. You can tell that they had reached a point with this young man where they no longer knew what to do or how to react or what to say. Or, or I think they might have preferred that I take them to jail than to leave them in the house with the 16-year-old. Needless to say that I told that 16-year-old that he wasn't going to get a police report and that he needed to take out the garbage and that he had no rights. But... It just, when Pastor Joaquin shared on Sunday about this, I told him about these things, and he said that he wasn't surprised in the sad state of the families. And why do I bring this up uh, tonight in front of you all? For this reason, when I see what God has done in our families, we have to say, thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Because we would have been no different. Our kids would not have been any different than from the kids that I have just described to you. And I think it's important to remember that and to give God the honor and the glory whenever we have the privilege of being in church with our kids. The most incredible testimony that this church has in everything that we've done in other countries, here, in everything that we've done since the inception of this church is the kids that are in this place. Yeah. I'd like the kids to all come up here a second, Amen. including the college group. Just stand right across here. Right now, let's go move it fast. I've seen you guys run in church. Now's your opportunity to run to the front. There are more kids here tonight than adults. Each of these kids has the potential to grow up, to be one of my customers at work, or to grow up to be a man and woman of God. And as you can see, God has begun a work. 
And this, like I said, is, the most, is the, what we most have to be proud of in this place, is this group of young men and young women that are up here today. This group that is over here, the college group, and we have a few that didn't come over here that they're in the back, is a rare thing in churches. I've visited churches, and you can find these little ones that are up here in all the churches. That's easy. But to find these guys in their 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, driving themselves to church on a Wednesday night, is a rare thing to find even inside the body of Christ, even in the churches. Because when they're this size, they do what mom and dad does, and they get in the car when mom and dad says get in the car. But the transition from this age to this age is sometimes a smooth transition when you bring them up in the Lord. Sometimes it's a bumpy transition, but it gets done. Because when you bring them up in the Lord, they will not depart. And we can see here the fruit of what God has done in this place. Let's give the Lord a hand tonight. Okay, you guys can take your seats or go to Sunday school or whatever it is. Or Wednesday night school. I don't know what they call it on Wednesdays. And if you're here tonight and you have a son or daughter or grandchild or whatever that is not doing good in the Lord, don't give up. Amen. God has not finished. Amen. You stay strong in the Lord, and you be faithful to the Lord, and show that child the, the love of God more than ever, and God will do the rest. You are, you are like that child's lighthouse. You know, that child or that teenager right now may be in the rough seas of, of the world, being knocked around, but if you are showing the light of Christ, and if you are a lighthouse in that young man or young woman's life, they, they know where the light is. And when the time comes, they will know uh, who to go to for help, and they will know who is there ready to receive them once they're tired of having the devil kick them around. And that will happen. There's a promise in the Bible that if you are saved, if you are faithful to the Lord, that you and your family will be saved. Amen. So Pastor Joaquin asked that we share tonight about on the subject matter of restoring the gates of prevail. Raise your hand and be honest. He's not going to see you. Your camera doesn't see you. If you have read this book in its entirety, raise your hand nice and high. Okay. It's about 20%. Well, t now you have a copy in your hands. And hopefully after tonight you'll be motivated to read this book because you'll see... Uh, Tonight you'll get a glimpse of how it's relative, not only for the church, but for your, for your own life. Let's open that, this book to page one. It's always a good place to start, right? We are going to read there paragraph one in page one. My earnest desire is that those responsible for the church and its condition will begin to change the world by lifting up the gates and walls that surround and protect the body of Christ. The book of Psalms has a prophetic announcement that if the gates be lifted up, the King of Glory will come marching in strong and mighty. Every word of restoring the gates of prevail was written to change the present state of affairs in the body of Christ. This book was written for every minister and ministry anointed by God's Spirit and zeal having the desire to rebuild and restore the Christian church. Let's stop there. The pastor's intentions when he wrote this book was to change the world. When I point up there, that's a good opportunity for you guys to say, change the world. <laughs> and how, how is, is the plan as far as this book is concerned to change the world? Well, this book goes into... Ten areas that need to be rebuilt and um, reestablished to its proper function in the church so that the church will function properly. 
And why, do you, uh, why is it necessary that the church be restored? W why is that relative to our world? Well, let me ask you something. Where do we see the church on the world stage right now? What role is the church playing in the world today? What is its importance? When we see important things going, around, going on in the world, when we turn on the news, is ever the church a rel uh, uh, something that is seen as an authority to go to to resolve the problems that our society faces? I don't see that. The church is seen on the world stage pretty much as an ancient establishment that is maybe good for performing marriage ceremonies and burying the dead. So the, the church today is not the leader of the world, the lighthouse that everybody goes to in times uh, when they need answers, solutions. The church is, is not at the state that it should be, and that's why it needs to be rebuilt. That's why it needs to come together as God had designed it. It needs to be an example that the world will want to follow. The church, if it were able to restore those ten gates, the church would be the solution that this world so desperately needs, but doesn't find in the church today. When Pastor Joaquin wrote this book, I guess it's been uh, now about five five or six years ago, we went to meet with the publisher. It was in, a, in central Florida somewhere. I don't remember the, the town right now. We went to meet with the publisher to talk about, uh, to talk with the publisher about how the marketing of the book was going to be handled and how uh, the publisher was going to see to it that this book uh, got into as many hands as possible. And we had that meeting and after that meeting, we, we left, and I said to Pastor Joaquin, I said, you know, Pastor Joaquin, I have to tell you the truth. I believe that this book is a very unique book. And then I told him something that most authors probably don't want to hear. I said, I don't think this book is for the masses. And that's not really what, a, what an author wants to hear, right? I told him, when most authors write books, you will see that they have titles like How to Find My Place in ministry, or how to unlock God's secrets to resolve my finances. Or like one of the bestsellers says, how to live my life, my best life now. And I'm not knocking those books. I, I probably own all of them, and they have their place, and they're a blessing. If you go to my house, I have over a library with over a thousand books, and, and there's nothing wrong with those books. I'm just saying it's different. This book was not written to meet a personal need of an individual. This book was written uh, for those who want to find out what God wants from the church. To those that want to find out what, what God's expectation of, is of this thing that we call church. The book is written for those sheep and those shepherds that want to change the world. That is the purpose of the book and really the whole mission of this church. And the first chapter, when you get into reading the book, you're going to see it is the sheep gate. And that's a chapter that we're going to talk a little bit about today. There are ten chapters in the book. One chapter for each, sit, for each gate in the city of, of, of ancient Jerusalem. And each gate uh, represents, each one of the ten gates represents a different area in the church that is vital for the church to have in a, in a good functioning way for that church to be all it can be in God's design for the church. And the walls in between each, each gate represent the unity between one ministry, between one function and the other. So that's why you'll see when, if you read this book that they not only restored the gates themselves, but they restored the walls, making sure that they were up to the proper height and that there were no holes in the walls. Let's read, let's turn to page 5, and let's read the first paragraph so we can have a better understanding of, of what I'm talking about. The journey towards the restoration of the ancient city of Jerusalem begins in Nehemiah 3.1, where Nehemiah made a call to arms so that the city's inhabitants would gather to rebuild a city that had laid in ruins for 70 years. For purposes of this book, the reader should consider ancient Jerusalem as a shadow and type of the local church. 
This book follows the order in which the gates are mentioned in chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah's plan remind you of when you hear, when you hear those words? Those are some of the same those are some of the same words, some of the same um, concepts that you hear from this very pulpit, mostly from Pastor Joaquin. Jerusalem is a shadow and a type of the local church, and you are the local church. They would gather together, the same way that we are gathered together here, to rebuild what was laid in ruins, which is the same thing that we have seen occur in each one of the families that are represented here. And Nehemiah, it says, made a call to arms. What is a call to arms? A call to arms is a call inviting you to get off your chair, to take up your arms, which is what God has given you, your talents, your burdens, and to do something, to move forward. It's a call to arms. I don't know about you, but I have heard calls to arms from this pulpit for 20 years on a constant basis. And... Pastor Joaquin and, and the, the leadership of this church is, has just made countless calls to arms for men, especially, right? We have, tend to focus on the men a lot. For men to be men of integrity. We give calls to arms for men to be the husbands and the fathers that they need to be. There's been calls to arms here for the women as well. For the women to be the godly women that God has called them to be, to fill the roles in their homes the roles that they, they should be filling and can fill here in the church. Likewise to the children. The children here have, from a young age, such a blessing, the, the Sunday school, where we have men like Julio and, and awesome teachers that truly love and have a burden for the kids. From a young age, these kids are receiving a call to arms to be the children that God has assigned them to be, to be examples in their own schools. So... In summary, it's a, it's a call to arms to be the sheep and the shepherds that God can use to, to change the world. It's a call to arms. Nehemiah did it, and we're doing it still here today. This book and its ten chapters are a shadow of the many things that God is doing in our families. When you get to go through each chapter, when you take this book home, if you, if you start reading, you will see how each gate is in a vital function in, in the church, like I had mentioned. But each gate can also be applied to your home as well. If you put it, when we had the young married uh, couples group that my wife and I uh, were helping with for a while, we went through the book chapter by chapter and how it applied to their marriages and to their families. The sheep gate, which is uh, gate number one, focuses on caring for God's sheep. That is the, the focus of that entire chapter. And who cares for, for God's sheep? I mean, let's, let's imagine that picture up there has sheep but the person that cares for it is not seen there. Do we know who cares for sheep? Shepherds. Shepherds care for, for sheep. Turn to page 6 a moment. We're going to start at the bottom half where it says the sheep gate. The sheep gate is located at the northeast section of the city. The repairs began at the sheep gate and then proceeded all the way around the city counterclockwise until all ten gates were restored. Between each city gate, walls were lifted and fortified so that the city was fully enclosed without any gaps or holes. The restoration efforts involved both men and women without distinction to particular abilities or skills. Nehemiah invited everyone to participate in realizing the restoration efforts, including the Jews, priests, nobles, rulers, and all ordinary or common people. There were about 45 different sections of gates and walls that were divided up so that each section was worked on in phases by different groups. As the sheep gate was, is restored, those called to the pastorate should note that the central purpose for the city's existence was for the caring of the sheep. The very essence of every local church function should be for the purpose of caring for the Lord's sheep. Any participation at the local church must, must focus on this special aspect of ministry, which is providing and caring protection for the Lord's sheep. That is gate number one for a reason. 
It is God's first and foremost concern, the well-being of his sheep, which is you. Nothing is more important to God than this ministry. Everything else can wait. If the church is missing anything else, it can still function. Out of ten areas of concern, God chose this to be first. Why? The sheep are the reason the gates are even needed in the first place. If we don't have healthy sheep, if we don't have sheep, we don't need the gates. It's the same thing as if you don't have, if you don't have a family, you don't need a four-bedroom house, right? If we didn't have a congregation here, if, this, if, if you didn't exist, if, if the sheep weren't here and weren't healthy, we wouldn't need a church. We are the most important. You, the sheep, are the most important thing in God's eyes. It's like we see our own children. What is more important, if you're a parent here today, and, and you saw how Joey was speaking proudly about his child. If you're a parent here today, you can relate to that. What is more important to you, and God is our Father, than your children? Nothing. Can anybody mention something that's more important to you than your children? If your children are sick, the world stops. The clock stops ticking. Nothing becomes more important to you when your child is sick than, the, than your child be healed. I remember when you have babies, you know, it's, it's a, I, I was, you can ask my, my wife, I used to boil everything that my child would come in contact with. My, my child's rattle and toys were deformed because I would boil them too long because I, I didn't want them to get sick. I didn't want to have any germs. When people would come over to see, uh, to see my kids when they were first born, I wouldn't let them remove the, that net that covers the bed. I said, look through the net. You can see them. You don't need to remove the net. And if they're hungry, wah, they just have to cry once, boop, and we're sticking something in their mouth. We feed our kids when they're hungry, when they're babies, constantly. When they get a little bit bigger, we stop at every other McDonald's and buy chicken nuggets through the, through the drive-thru. I know about feeding because I grew up in a house where my mother was obsessed with feeding me. It was an obsession. I still have memories or flashbacks, I should call them. I can see my mother in the kitchen when I was you know, very small. I could see her from early in the morning getting ready my puree that I had to have for lunch. And I could see those big pots and the bubbles coming from the pots. And then the, I could still hear that noise that I would hear every day of the blender. That She had an industrial size blender that would take all that stuff that she made and she would put it in there and she would throw pieces of steak in there and you could see smoke come out of the motor when the steak woo, would go through there and then she would she would strap me down to my um, high chair and put this big bowl of, of puree in front of me every day and, and that thing was thick you can stand the fork in and it wouldn't fall over because it's an obsession that, that we have with, with feeding our kids. And that's a good thing. We love our kids. We want them to grow big and healthy, right? Well, God is the same way. Nothing else matters to God more than caring for you, than caring for His sheep. And that's a good thing. For God so loved us that He gave His Son. What more proof do we need? Let's read it in God's own words. Let's turn to page 13. So that, that is the essence of this, of this chapter, that caring for God's sheep is the most important thing that God wants us to understand that he expects from a church. Page 13, we're going to read the top, and that's going to be John. We're going to be reading John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend to my sheep. Those are clear words. And what he's saying without saying it is, if you don't feed my sheep, if you don't tend to my sheep, then you don't love me. He's saying, in other words, what we can get from that is, don't worry too much. The bookstore is a great thing, necessary and good. But if it's going to cause you to lose focus on my sheep, don't do it or be careful with it. The food ministry is a great ministry, but please don't let it detract you or distract you from the sheep. Missionary trips, retreats, are a great thing in God's eyes, but who's going to stay behind with the sheep that do not participate? So in other words, his cry, the cry of, of, of those words in the book of John is, remember to feed and tend my sheep. If you want to please God, that is his weak spot. If you want to bring a smile to God's face, an even bigger smile because I know he's always smiling, all we have to do is that one command from the Lord because it's not a request, it's a command. The Lord tells Simon Peter twice, feed, and once, tend. Have you ever noticed that? I just noticed it when I was preparing my notes. Could that be a coincidence or a mistake? Or do we think that God, the Lord, chooses his words carefully? I believe both words were intentional. We must feed and tend God's sheep. Now, the word feed is something that we could figure out what, what, uh, he's, what, what that means pretty easily, right? Feed means to teach the word of God. Feed means Bible studies. What I'm doing right now would be considered feeding. Um, the married couples groups feed the married couples of different ages specific things, specific diets for what they need to hear. The youth group ministries feed our kids from a very young age what they need to be hearing, what they need to be learning, up through the college group. So all those ministries are feeding, right? It's like the, when the shepherd takes the, the sheep out. He takes them out to a green pastures, and all he's got to do is let them eat. So it's everything that has to do with the nourishment, the development of sound doctrine so that these sheep can grow up, so that they can mature, and they, 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 need, they have all the knowledge that they need to, to become adult Christians, healthy adult Christians. That's what feeding is about, right? We're fed from this pulpit every Wednesday. We're fed from this pulpit every Sunday. And in between, there's meetings and all kinds of things going on where we're able to be fed uh, besides these two services. So feeding is something that we, we all understand and, and we're used to hearing and seeing. But what about tend? It's even kind of a strange word. You think, is that even a word, T-E-N-D? But it is. And the word comes from the word attend, A-T-T-E-N-D. And it means to direct one's mind and energy towards someone. And the word is a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. So it, a verb means what? It means action. It means you're going to have to do something, right? It's not just watch them eat. Uh, to tend means that you're going to have to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to work with these sheep now. You're going to have to, it's a, you're going to see that it's more, it's harder, more work to tend than it is to feed. The shepherd doesn't just take the sheep out to the green pasture and say, okay, sheep, you see that green area over there? Munch on that. I'll see you next time. And leaves. Right? Pastor Joaquin doesn't show up here on, Wednesday, on Sundays and give you the word and says, see you next Sunday, and he's off, and you don't know where, he, and he disappears, right? No, he's here the whole time because he's tending to the sheep besides feeding them. And how does a pastor tend to a sheep? What are the many things that could come up? Well, the sheep, they get sick. Real sheep get sick. You sheep get sick, right? And the pastor is, is available. The church leaders who are also shepherds. We're all shepherds. We're going to see that in a little while. But uh, we are available to tend to each other's needs. If a brother or sister gets sick, we're there to pray for you. 
If you have a need, we're there to fill it for you. The sheep, the real sheep and us as sheep, sometimes face dangers, right? We're good at pointing out dangers in this church, right? Our pastor has a, an eagle eye to spot dangers. And some people get offended and think that that's overbearing, but it's a blessing in our lives. It's a role of the pastor. It's a role of the shepherd to be able to see the wolf among the sheep. Because when, when you're sheep, you know, we're all there head to head, and sometimes we don't see what the pastor could see from his vantage point. And there are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, right? And sometimes the pastor will say, hey, young lady, that guy has very long teeth, and I think he's a wolf, right? <laughs> Have any of you heard that? <laughs> and he wants to eat you. And the pastor can see that. The shepherd can see that. Amen? Then it's up to the sheep to be eaten or, or to pay attention, right? Sometimes the sheep, you know, I've, I've never been among a herd of sheep, but I've been among plenty of herds of, of cows, you know. My wife and I have many times gone to places where on horseback where we're with, with cows, and they fight. They don't get along. Sometimes the sheep, don't f they fight. And that doesn't happen in this congregation. But sometimes... We have feisty sheep. And, and I've been involved. I've been in that room many times, many times with sheep and Pastor Joaquin. And, and, and the sheep fight, and they bite, and they kick. And it's the role of the shepherd to tend to that. That's not feeding. That's tending to the sheep's needs so that they don't pull their weaves out and they don't get nasty with each other. Many times, the sheep get into financial problems. Not those sheep on the picture, but the sheep that are here. Right? It's a huge issue uh, nowadays. It's, it's an issue that uh, has truly become an embarrassment for this country as a whole. And why do I even mention the country? Because it's, it's the lack of God in the, in the country that has brought the state of affairs to be what it is today in this country. Uh, we are seeing things and hearing things that we have never heard before, or at least in my lifetime in this country. You can't get away from it in the news. Every time you turn it on, you hear the debt crisis and all, all of this bad news all over, the, all over it. I mean, any, anywhere you turn, uh, things are happening that in my lifetime at least, and I'm 45, had never happened before. This country that was founded by Christian, uh, on Christian biblical, biblical foundations by Christian men, embarrassing things uh, like having our credit rating, our bond rating uh, lowered. Uh, that's basically the world saying, you know what, you guys are out of control. You guys are not, uh, we are not able to place trust in your credit like before. Uh, things like the, the situation nowadays with the American dream has always been our homes, right? You could buy a property in the United States, wait five years, and it increased in value, right? I mean, all throughout my life, at least, uh, it was like that, right? The American dream, it was as solid as a rock. You know, your home was your home, and that was something that, you know, buy your first home, and, you know, that's going to be your retirement. That's your savings, this and that. And even that, nowadays is being shaken uh, by foreclosures and, and total loss of, of values. And we're going to see why we're mentioning this in a, in a couple minutes. Uh, it's important to hear it because, and it's important to see it because uh, we need to know why. Because the world is going to give us a bunch of reasons why. Interest rates, this and that, all types of, of worldly explanations. But I believe it's a very simple godly principle that has been violated by this country that is causing us to, to live what we are living nowadays. And that is that you will reap what you sow. No God, no blessing. It's as simple as that. That applies in our own lives. That applies as, as a country, it applies. This country has made cold and calculated decisions. Example, we don't want God in our schools anymore. Take prayer out of school. And after that, what are the results that we see in the following years? Things that had never happened before. Columbine, 
all types of shootings and massacres and all types of disasters going on in school. Another decision that, that I could not believe in that rocked me personally was the, removing the Ten Commandments from our courthouses. How many remember that or are even aware of that? Always, in every courthouse in this country, the Ten Commandments were posted on the wall. Makes sense, right? Do not kill, do not steal. Sounds good for a courthouse? No. This country made a decision that that was a violation of separation of church and state and removed the Ten Commandments from every courthouse in this country. A country that is moving towards making gay rights more acceptable, marrying uh, gay couples, promoting and making gay, the gay agenda uh, something that they're trying to force down our throats is moving away from God. A country that for many years now has allowed abortions, right? This country before the 60s, I believe it was, that, that did not exist. It was, it was considered murder. And then that has been legalized where in this country we were killing thousands and hundreds of thousands of babies a year. And now what we are seeing, which is the news of the, debt of the day, is that this country is in debt up to its eyebrows. But the sad thing is that so are its people. In the midst of this chaos, as I was talking, it just so happens to my wife about this very situation. We were in the car and, I, and I, we were listening to Bob Coy, the pastor of Calvary Chapel. And he was talking about this very subject. He was addressing it with his congregation. And he said something that, that made me laugh because I had said the same thing so many times to my wife. He said, has, he, he was preaching about this, and then all of a sudden he paused, and you, could, you don't hear anything on the radio. I was like, and all of a sudden he said, has anybody noticed that the entire world is in chaos? The entire world is in financial chaos. And, you know, the other reason that we need to hear these things is because that's fine for the world and for those who do not know the Lord. But that is not fine for God's people. Unfortunately, though, we are seeing, and, and when I say the entire world, and that that's weird is because, you know, we, could, we always heard, you know, different countries going through difficult situations. You know, Russia had their collapse. You know, Africa had their disasters. Uh, different areas. But today, the, it's the entire world that is going through, that is going through financial chaos that's, that's uh, falling apart before our eyes, including this country for the first time in history. And the, what the unfortunate part is and what's relevant to us is that unfortunately many of God's people are going through some of the same uh, disasters, some of the same uh, problems with foreclosures, with bankruptcies, with IRS and tax issues. And the worst part about it is that we are seeing Christian families being burdened heavily by, by personal debt, which is the same problem facing this country. And that has an effect on marriages, it has an effect on the families. And it all comes from a spirit that has just gripped this country, a spirit of discontentment that has gripped this country that, that causes all of, all of this increment of debt. It's an attitude of entitlement, an attitude of entitlement that, that comes from the very devil. The devil thought he was entitled to more than what he had, right? And which brought his, his fall. And it's this attitude of entitlement that, that has come across this country and discontentment that has brought this country to its knees financially. And it's no wonder, because we are bombarded from every angle, if you turn on the TV, you are bombarded. Every other, uh, there's more commercials now than there, than there is content. If you're watching a program, you will see more commercials than you will see program as far as minutes are concerned. And we are bombarded by things and, and advertisements telling us, you need to buy this, you need to get that, you deserve this, get that. Our mailboxes are filled with offers of credit cards. You know, just send it back, sign it and send it back. Our, now, through our email, through uh, social media, we are bombarded constantly with this, with this pressure to have more, to have more credit, to go further into debt. Uh, and you just can't get away from it unless you're walking by the Spirit of God and not by the Spirit of this, of this uh, world. I was working, I guess it was like three months ago, at Miami-Dade Community College. I was waiting 
uh, in the office to see the, the president of the school. And I was sitting in a little um, waiting room that, that she has there. And, and there was a counter with two young ladies working behind it in their 20s. And they were talking, and I was listening and, uh, as I was waiting. And one of the girls says to the other one, I had my first sonogram, uh, but they weren't able to tell me what it was. And the other girl says, oh, great, that's, that's good. You're getting everything ready. Have you bought the minivan yet? And, and the pregnant girl says to her, no, um, I haven't done anything about it because I really don't have any money right now, but I know I have to take care of that. I'm probably going to have to lease one, she says to the other girl. And I was listening, and I said, mm, uh, this girl feels this pressure that she has to buy a minivan because she's pregnant. So I got up, and I walked over to him, and I said, do you mind if I, if I comment on your, on your conversation that, that you guys were just having? And they both looked at me with these big eyes. I was in uniform, and so they let me. And I said to her, I said to her, you know, I was listening to what you were saying, and if you don't mind, you know, I'm 45 years old, and, you know, you're almost, you know, my daughter's age, and I, I have something to tell you that will help you. And she just nodded her head, and I said to her, I was born in 1965. When I was born, minivans did not exist. Closest thing to a minivan was a station wagon. Minivans did not exist. And look at me, big and strong. I made it. Why am I telling you this? Because I can see that you have this uh, idea that because you're pregnant, you have to, you said, I have to buy a minivan now. And I just want to let you know that it's okay if you don't buy the minivan. I know that you've been raised under this system that has planted in your head through one billion commercials, through uh, pressures of your friends and your, and your relatives and all that, that you have to buy a minivan because you're pregnant. And I want you to know that you don't have to buy that minivan. What do you drive now? And she says, no, I just have a four-door, um, I think she said Altima. And I go, okay, I promise you that when you have that child and you come out from the hospital with that child and you place him in the back seat of that car, he's not going to say, where's the minivan? <laughs> I promise you that you will be fine with that car because my mother did it and many millions of mothers have opened that back door and that car seat fits in there and in the trunk I promise you that you'll be able to put the stroller and the other bag and all those things I just want you to know that you don't have to feel the pressure that you're under you don't have to buy the minivan you're gonna need that money to buy diapers you're gonna have to buy diapers because it eats and poops that's it. You're going to have to buy food, and you're going to have to buy diapers. Those things, you're going to have to buy. So I just want you to know that there are priorities. I hate to see you get in debt. You're a young lady. I'm sure you don't make a whole ton of money here. That You don't have to buy that minivan. And, you know, she smiled, and she said, hey, you know, thank you. I appreciate it. And I walked away. But, and I'm not knocking minivans. Don't get me wrong. What I'm knocking is the pressure that we have been trained to, to, to function under. Where if you get pregnant, you have to buy this. If you get married, you have to uh, do that. Uh, you have to go out and buy a house right away. And, and it's all these things that you have to ask yourself, why? Where did these things come from? And these are the very attitudes of entitlement and discontentment that have led, led, uh, led this country to where it's at today and has led so many families into deep debt. And we, as the people of God, don't have to participate. That's the reason I'm saying all this, so that we know that we don't have to participate. We are God's sheep, and we are shepherds. We do not have to participate. We have to live not by the spirit of this world, but by the spirit of God. Amen. Proverbs 22.7. It's not in the, the book. It's in your Bible. Proverbs 22.7 says, you don't have to look it up, very short verse. The borrower is the servant to the lender. What is a servant? It's another word for slave. What is a lender? That's your master. The more debt you have, the more masters you have. And how many masters can we serve? What does the Bible say? 
But how many masters do we really have? If we start adding up the different masters that we have, we might be surprised. And then apart from, sadly enough, many Christians getting into the same financial chaos as, as the world is getting into, when they find themselves overwhelmed, when they find themselves at the end of their wit with all of the debt that they've incurred, the car payments, this, the house that they couldn't afford, the credit cards, all these things, then they are also reacting to this problem the same way as the world does. In the world, today's um, fashionable thing to do, which I had never seen before, you guys in your 40s can relate to this, is walk away from your debts. Put the keys of the house on the banker's desk and say, I'm out of here. Just walk away. Don't worry about it. It's only your name, your reputation, and your signature and your word. Walk away from your debts. I had never seen that before this latest financial debacle. But that is what the trend now is. And it's sad to see Christian families doing the same thing. And we're going to read one verse that's going to dispel and destroy that theory and that way of living. Romans 13, 7 and 8. This verse now it would be good to put on a billboard like on a turnpike or 95 where people can read it and see that it's wrong what's going on. Romans 13, verse 7 and 8 says, Give everyone what you owe to him. If you owe taxes, pay the taxes. If you owe money, pay the money. If you owe respect, pay respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. It's, it's up to the shepherds to teach the sheep these things because they're not going to learn it uh, through any other means. The world is not going to teach the sheep, the Christians, are the people that, that are part of our congregation these things. I can guarantee you that it's not going to come from anywhere else than from a godly man or woman. To st it's, it's important that in, that in this time of just total darkness and chaos that we stand like a lighthouse in the midst of this darkness and this, and this desperation that the people are living, this financial desperation and debacle that people are living in. It's important that we that know the truth and know God's ways stand like a lighthouse and just say, no, it's wrong. You can't do that. You don't need to do that. Why are you doing that? To question why every, all these things are being done and to dispel them and to take the burdens off the people that this society has placed on them. And then it's up to the sheep to listen because I've seen it many times where the sheep are, are, are shown and given options and then they choose not to follow uh, godly counsel. But then, you know, that's a decision that, that is an individual decision. We will not make a decision for you. At least I will not ever make a decision for you. God doesn't make decisions for me or for you. He gives us free will. Why should I take your ability to make the decision for yourself? So, even though many times the counsel goes out, the decisions will be made in the other direction, but at least the person chooses his own poison. So as you can see, the shepherd has his hands full. There are many things to tend to. It's harder to tend to the sheep than it is to feed the sheep. Anybody can feed the sheep, almost. If you can read, you can feed the sheep. But to tend to the sheep is another matter. Such a small word, and many of us miss it when we read those those. Uh, verses, but it's a small word with a huge implication. And to finish off, I want to let you know one more thing, that, and that is that we are all sheep, from Pastor Joaquin down. I, I, we are all sheep, and I think we know that. But we also need to know that we are all shepherds, down to the last person that entered this congregation, that entered this church. You are a shepherd. And let me try to illustrate that um, a little bit better. Everyone needs to be fed, right? So we know we're all sheep. If you, don't need to, you know, if you don't need to be fed, then you're dead, right? So until the day that we die, we need to be fed spiritually, I'm speaking. We need to grow. We need to hear from God. We need to be fed until the very day, day that we die. 
But at the same time, I'm telling you that everyone can also feed others. You can also be a shepherd. And let me show you, let me illustrate this a little bit better. Let me have a few of the ushers come up here. And um, you can come up here. A couple of the youth, two on the end here. I'll tell you what, you guys stand side by side, facing that way. You guys come around the back, come on. Come on, guys. Don't be afraid. Right here, two by two. That's enough. Two more, you guys. We are all shepherds, and we were all sheep. We were all sheep. I'll play the part of the pastor. The pastor and the leaders are sheep because, like I said, they need, they need to receive until the day they die. We're always learning. We're always receiving so that we can give. So I receive because I'm a sheep, but I'm also a shepherd. So I feed in this direction, right? I'm able to feed and tend to, the, to all these sheep. Now, these men in, right behind the pastor represent deacons and, you know, heads of ministry that have been and walking with the Lord for a long time. And they are fed, they receive, but they also turn around, turn around, and they are able to be shepherds because all these people behind them have a lot to learn from their years of experience in the Lord because they've probably already raised kids. They've been through a lot of things that they can help now feed the ones behind them. Now these here have been less time in the Lord and they're being fed from the pastor and from everybody in front of them. But they also turn around and they've been in the Lord now for five years so they have Bible studies they have experiences and testimonies and now besides being sheep they're shepherds because everybody behind them will benefit from their experience and what they have to say and now they're sheep because they're receiving from everybody in front from all their experiences but these guys that have been in the Lord only for a year have been saved, have been baptized, the Lord has done a work in their lives, and guess what? They can feed those guys back there that have just come to the Lord. So turn around, now these sheep become shepherds. And they're telling these guys that just came to the Lord, all they've done is accept Christ, that they need to get baptized, that the Lord is doing a work in their lives, many things. They are being fed by these guys that were sheep that are now shepherds, are feeding these sheep. And guess what? Even they turn around and they have behind them an entire world, an entire population of people that are not saved. So these sheep that just came to the Lord a short time ago are now shepherds to an entire world that does not know the Lord. Amen? You guys can sit down. So we are all sheep. We are all sheep and we are all shepherds. If we're able to restore the sheep gate in our church, I believe that that would cause an, uh, an explosion of growth in the church. It's the most important gate in God's eyes, and therefore it needs to be the most important responsibility and uh, gate as far as this book is concerned in our eyes. Because if God says it's the most important one, then that's all we need to know, right? Amen. Let's ask the ushers and the musicians to come forward. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper tonight. The copy of the book that you have. If you already have the book, you can feel free to just hand it at the end of the service back to the ushers if, if you don't need it because you already have it. If you don't have the book, then that copy is for you to keep. And it's not to be used as a paperweight it's so that you will read it, hopefully, because I know that it will bless your life uh, richly as you apply it here in the church and also in your homes. Let's pray for the Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you tonight for the privilege of participating in the Lord's table. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that sacrifice that you did on the cross of Calvary for us, for shedding your blood in your body, Father, when we did not deserve it, Lord. We pray, Father, that you will bless it, Father, that it will be 
a blessing to our lives, Father, that it will strengthen our spirit and our souls, Father, to continue to follow you, Lord Jesus, in a way that dignifies the sacrifice that you made, O Lord Jesus. We thank you tonight together. We pray that you will prepare our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, the ushers can go ahead and